Welcome, Dr. James Beckett, Sports Card Insights. I don't know that I call it part three with Ryan Staczynski of Gemrate, but we just got on a roll and uh, talked a little bit technology, and so it's all mixed in. But I think he's got uh, big plans for the future. He's just trying to figure out how he can add value to our industry by uh, taking some complicated data and, and uh, simplify it and summarizing it. So thanks for doing that. Thanks, sponsors, Top Spinini, Upper Deck, Heritage Auctions, Suggs and Scott Auctions, Mike Stadium Sports Cards, Burbank Sports Cards, CompC.com, and Beckett Media, Beckett Grading, Beckett Authentication. So here's the uh, the last part of my discussion with Ryan. The vision for this is to build this sort of, I was calling it total population. You can call it global population. You can call it whatever you want. But I felt the market was sort of favoring sellers and that it was always presented through the narrow lens of the graders. The supply looks like this, but only through the lens of PSA or only through Beckett. A simple example of this, I was looking at Connor McDavid. He is an anomaly in the sense that, and I don't follow hockey that closely, but like the bulk of his cards are graded with Beckett, BGS, and only a fraction of them are with PSA. But PSA, now that he's emerged as a star and pretty iconic, people would be led to believe that he has a much smaller supply he's than he pop. does. He's low pop. Yeah. Exactly. And so I get pushback on the value of that. And I think it comes from the lens of the seller. And I really want to make sure that there's an idea here that services the buyer better, which is actually, let's zoom out. And there's way more cards that exist, five times more, if you think about it, just the way that the dynamic and the landscape has changed. And so I like the idea of total pop, but I'm not totally sure how the market will receive it in the sense of, look, it could do some damage in the near term in the sense that people will have more data and people will be more informed and they could impact prices and put some negative pressure on it. But I think ultimately it's to the benefit because people will make smarter decisions and won't give Again, if you had the rights and privileges to do this, that's ripe for an app or a, some kind of a, whatever, API, something, a mobile app where they just put in the card and it give them the combined pop report with the best specificity. Right. If you have all the data, the problem is, like I said, if you're selling it, you're selling what you don't own. But if you're providing it as a service, somebody's going to do that. You can do it manually on your own anyway. Totally. Like I say, if it's a $100 card, blow it off. $1,000 card, do the extra work. $10,000 card, right. for sure. $100,000 card, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. So combine pop reports, yeah. Because like you say, the gem rate, all that stuff has to be taken in full context. Where I thought you were going with this is making inference for the total population mm-hmm. under it and making mm-hmm. some inference. You can do that in a statistical sense when you have the, the serial numbering and you know right. that of the serial numberings to 99 or 999 or whatever, a certain number are graded. And so that means a certain number aren't. Uh, right. You really can't extrapolate that to uns. Non-serial number cards. How many of these Prism Silver Zions and Lucas are there? If we got that many that are gem mint that are graded, how that many that are graded, and then how many are not graded? And it's not because they're blemished necessarily. Right. Uh, but right. that's asking you to be a boots on the ground detective. Okay. Because I think you're a data guy. And so how can you find that from the data? And they need to know how many other Connor McDavid's could come into PSA that could dilute the value. You know, one right. of one's no big deal. One of tens, maybe no big deal. But one of 99, one of 999, how many are still extant? And how many yeah. could be gem men? Because then you're secure that this is a grade that's going to stand the test of time because it can't be diluted with. Because again, the subtext of your service is people are concerned that with the increase in grading companies, it's going to be easier to get gem mint cards. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. it's going to cheapen it. You don't think, oh, we haven't had enough gem mints lately. Hey, guys, we need some more 9.5s today. We're running low. It's not that. Each card stands on its own. And I would imagine PSA is the same. So, hey, Ryan says we're, we don't have enough 10s. We got to get some more 10s. 
They can't be doing that. That's not integrity. So their gem rate could go up or it could go down. And I'm hoping that it's based on, and submitters are getting smarter. Card companies, better quality control, and the bulk submitters, the rise of that over COVID and the cessation of PSA and BGS are receiving. And now if you're a bulk submitter, you're pre-grading or you're scan, screening, vetting cards. And so the gem rate should be going up. All things being right. equal, it should right. go up over time. Right. People need to understand that, again, you're straddling this, letting the data do the talking as opposed to you doing the talking. I, I was in that same position. We, mm-hmm. we, we were you know, monitoring what was going on, but then there was some editorializing aspect of our magazines. Yeah. You know, the, the, here's the price, but then here's some explanation. One way I was thinking about addressing this sooner than later was not necessarily estimating anything around print runs or total supply even, but giving like a base rate. So actually in this world of parallels, you might see 10 base Zions before you see one silver prism. You might see 50 base Zions before you see one red prism, giving you like a frame of reference or like how rare this is relative to other cards. So maybe well, that's, not. That's doable. That's, that's right. Totally doable. In the product literature and sometimes the pack odds and things like that. Again, it's very laborious. We did that. You can figure out that so many million cards were produced, which means right. there's so many hundreds of thousands of each player, but that's case by case, product by product. Yeah, and it's even company by company. It tops is much more, makes well, that data much more available. The, we, Rich and I are doing this series where we got some original production data spreadsheets from Pacific from back in the late 90s. And we know how many cards they produced of each player, of each insert, and a serial number. We, we all obviously know that. But then there's some overage. But then that doesn't mean all those cards still exist. Case by case basis, if they said, hey, I want to know about 96 uh, Topps Chrome basketball. I want to know how many base cards there are. That's doable. That's doable. But somebody ought to pay you for it, Ryan, because otherwise, when you slice and dice the the data that much, it it really ought to be a custom report that, again, after some period of time, maybe could be released as to others. But one other question, a little bit more macro. So one of the reasons I haven't monetized is I want to make sure I'm very thoughtful about, again, the value that I'm adding and thinking about making sure this isn't just some I put up a paywall too soon where not enough people really understand the value that I'm adding and I limit the size of my audience. So I'm curious though, I'm also cautious with all this money that's coming into the market of venture capital and all this that's sort of it's a little frothy. I'm just curious like how willing you think people are to pay for tooling in this hobby? Because I think like it was a hobby for a lot of people for a long time. It's become a profession for a number of people now. And I'm, I'm curious, you see the pricing tools in the market. They're not giant. They have good audiences, but they're not huge audiences that are paying for them on a monthly basis. So I'm wondering how willing you think this this hobby is to pay for tools in general as a, a broader theme? The hobby's not willing to pay for tools, but these uh, investors coming in from outside, are, uh, they are very willing <laughs> to pay frothy prices. Pre-revenue, I think if you were interested in selling, there would be somebody interested in buying. It's an asymmetric reward possibility. The most they could lose is whatever they pay you. And the most they could gain, it's not infinite, but you're basically selling electrons. There's no tangible product. There's no cost of sales. It's all the fixed cost of setting up the engine and then cranking out these reports. I'm exaggerating, but once it gets going, it's a high margin digital product. People love that. It's like NFTs. There's no real cost there. It's almost pure profit. So if you were interested in selling, somebody would be interested in buying. But the whole thing is whether you want to do that or not, your course is the same. And that is to continue to add value and strengthen, improve your product. And at some point, you will have leverage that somebody will share your same vision and say, 
Ryan, we can take this to the next level. Here's our offer. Here's our contract with you. Here's our vision for it. And then you could say, yes, sir, it could be an outsider. If it's an insider, a company already in the industry that would want to add you, not just your product, but you and and this to their offering. Right. And I hear what you're saying as far as a addressable market and, and sort of the mechanics of producing this content and, and bringing this data to market. I'm curious, though, to circle back on that sort of do you think that the, not necessarily from participating from a business standpoint in, in what I'm doing, but more just from the hobby's willingness to pay for tooling in general, like the market movers, the card letters of the world, do you feel like there's enough people in this hobby to support a lot of companies in that space? Or do you feel like it's a pretty frugal I, I, hobby where... I, I glossed over this, but I don't think people want to pay for tools. They want free tools. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. There's some in, in-app kinds of purchases. You're going deeper and things like that. Again, this is me pontificating, but I just think to have a level of a very broad-based, useful, helpful service that's free, that yep. has a layer above where you can get some more stuff where people aren't grumbling, they're getting value, and there's no reason not to. You can't be disrupted. You can't be undercut. I think a lot of these others, the market movers, the card ladder, they need to have an entry point that gets people, I won't say addicted, but they've got to get used to the service and see the value and then keep upselling them to the more premium service. I think at one point, they were both approaching it that way, but right. there'll be others like that. But for every person that wants to pay 10 bucks a month, there are a hundred that want it free. I mean, that's been my mentality too. And the other thing is, Ryan, like I said, I don't want to be discouraging to you because I think that the ability and the interest in micropayment types of monthly services is increasing as we speak. And I don't know, that was $250 a month for me. I live in a nice house. I have a nice car. I have a nice life. And that was made at $2.50. And it went up to $2.95 after a while. So I'm just saying, <laughs> small payments, if you can appeal to a broad group of people, I like that model. And if, if you believe in what Fanatics is saying they're going to do, however many collectors there are now, there's going to be twice as many up in, in two or three years. And they're going to need to get up to speed. And they're going right. to need products like what you're designing. So to get them hooked with your free model and then upsell them to, like I say, the customer reports or... Yeah, it's fun. I don't want to be underestimating the amount of work it takes. That It's not just pressing a button. There's a lot of programming. And I joke about how in our company and our price guides, people thought, oh, this is so mainstream. But where we made our money and where you'll make your money, perhaps, is in a treatment of the exceptions, of the things that broke the rules. Because otherwise, you could be replaced by a robot. Okay, But no, we recognize the anomalies and you have to either program around it or uh, take out outliers or whatever, but you're in that same boat. Uh, Card Ladder, I think, notably is really trying to uh, vet the data. So they're claiming they have the most accurate and vetted and verified data of anybody right. in the space. But I know when I was at, at, at Beckett, obviously, we were doing that because we had to verify. You can't just take somebody's word for it. On the other hand, the pop reports, that ought to be the finished product unless there's an error or a mistake. You've got the cracked out resubmission kind of issue. And, and I think PSA is going to, and BGS is, they're all working on that, I think, to try to fingerprint or do something. And it, so that'll shake right. out in your data as it happens. Because otherwise you've got some cards where there's more graded than exist. Excellent. Just keep up the good work. I love what you're doing. I think there's dreamers and there's doers. So I want to be a doer. You're a doer. Just keep doing Keep, keep using you. your expertise. It's going to make the pie bigger. You are one of the people that I was hoping this would get on the radar of. And when it I'm did, there, I'm joining. Like I said, if you're okay with me, I'm not spilling beans because I, I think it's a very short list. You, you're probably not the only guy in the world that can do what you've done, but you've done it. 
and not everybody can do it. Like I, the stuff I did, people say, just do what he did. I had, a, like I say, a set of skills and I did yeah. that. And yeah, you know, no, I, thank you. I appreciate it. The man that-